So welcome back to the Waiting Room Revolution. Today, we are very excited to have Dr. Connie Siskowski on the show. She is an RN, a PhD, and a caregiver advocate. She was and the founder and president of the American Association of Caregiving Youth. She's calling from Florida today to join us, and she's been named a top 10 CNN hero before. So we're very excited to learn about how young carers intersects with the waiting room revolution. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Welcome, Connie. Thank you so much. I'm really thrilled to have this opportunity to be on your show and talk with your listeners. I thought I'd start with your own personal story of how you started this journey and ended up becoming the founder of a national organization focused on young cares. So I never, ever expected to be on this journey, but it's like you walk along and you, you just go through that door that opens. So, um, yeah, I took care of my grandfather, who was really my hero, when I was in middle school between the ages of 11 and 13. Uh, we lived with my grandparents, and um, my grandfather was like my buddy. You know, he taught me how to fix a light to do a lot of different things. And I think my grandmother probably didn't have a good caregiving gene, if you will. He he kept working part-time until he was 84. And I always kind of joke to say that that's probably because he didn't want to be home with my grandmother all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and, and then, you know, his health really started to decline. He had uh, heart issues. And um, so... As, as his health declined, I moved in from my bedroom into uh, the living room to be closer to him. And so then one night in March of 1960, I went to take him his medication in uh, at 2 o'clock in the morning, and I can still feel his skin that was so cold. So, you know, this was at a time when trauma in children wasn't recognized. And so not only did I have the trauma of providing personal care, my mom, by the way, worked two jobs. I had a brother who was not involved in the caregiving aspect at all. And as I said, my grandmother, this was really not her thing. She could cook good, though. And so um, so in addition to, you know, the trauma of the care and his death, I didn't have him in my life anymore, right? So I missed having having a dad, having a male figure. None of this was really realized until I was in counseling as an adult. And thankfully, um, my counselor was astute enough to um, point, you know, some of what I had gone through as a child um, out to me. And so that helped me heal. And... Um, so uh, I did go into nursing and I went into cardiac nursing. So, you know, it all kind of, you know, goes together. When I went back to school and got my uh, master's, it was in public administration with a major in health administration. And uh, then uh, my work throughout the healthcare system was pretty varied and I even uh, obtained, I was recruited to open an extended care facility in Newark, New Jersey. And uh, so I had that experience also. So you were a young caregiver and you started your career in critical care nursing. I also read on your bio that then you, you went on to work in a hospice in Florida and then you went on to provide home care. I'm curious though, how did your professional career pivot to begin focusing on young carers? I was uh, waiting to go into a meeting at the National Council on Aging in Washington. And while I was waiting, I looked down and I see this brochure and it's called Faith in Action. And it was a program of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And I thought, you know, people could really use this, uh, which was focused on volunteers to help people in need. Uh, and so 
I came home and met with my minister who said, well, I think this is a really good idea, Connie, but I'm too busy. So he introduced me to uh, some other people. And bottom line is we began Boca Raton Interfaith in Action. And so we deviated a bit from the typical Faith in Action model, which is attached to a particular religion, because our population here in Boca Raton is pretty diverse. And we didn't want any barriers to access care. So uh, that was in 1998. And that same year, I had the chance to go to the first international conference on caregiving in London. Mm. And it was there that I learned about young carers. Um, I was kind of taken. And that summer, I went on a mission trip with kids from my church. And one of the boys had lost his dad recently, and another girl's dad had pancreatic cancer. And kids were just worried about their parents, about their grandparents. So, um, you know, all these little things just kind of piled up along the way. Little, little seeds were planted, and they were about to bloom. And Connie, how did you then get into research? A door was opened. I heard about a survey that was being conducted in Palm Beach County, uh, Florida, of middle and high school students. And I was able to include a family health section at the very end. So it went to over 12,000 kids. And more than one in four of them who were caregiving said that they were either missing school, not doing their homework, having trouble focusing, or some combination of them both. So this survey, uh, the purpose of it was to ask kids what helps them learn and what doesn't. And that's how the school district got involved. But, you know, I don't know what exactly it's like in Canada, but at that time, which was in like 2002, people were starting to get worried about the high school dropout rate. Mm -hmm. And they were looking at, you know, what's wrong with the schools? What's wrong with the teachers? There was no understanding about what's going on at home with these kids. Mm. So it was like too early on, even though I had this nonprofit established, um, that people really wanted to invest or deal with the issue. It's like uh, one of the county commissioners said to me one time, well, Connie, you know, um, maybe people don't want to know because it's like if people know, then you have to do something about it. Mm-hmm. So... Um, yeah, that was uh, pretty revealing and probably a little bit too true. So um, I did get, I had come to know people on a national basis and I shared the results of our work in Palm Beach County. And uh, as a result, uh, Carol Levine, who's an amazing person, who um, is at United Hospital Fund Foundation in New York, convened a meeting in 2003 and brought over some people from the UK, as well as some people that were looking at uh, some of the issues surrounding HIV in New York. And so at that time, at that meeting, uh, Rick Green, uh, who was with the Administration on Aging, said that they would fund the first national study uh, on caregiving youth. And so that was released in in September of 2005, and it showed that there were at least 1.3 million children ages 8 to 18 in that role. So with that came some media attention. So because, you know, people, it's like, you know, what the kids do is behind closed doors. People don't see it. You know, they may see some kid pushing somebody in a wheelchair, but there's, you know, there's not the thought process. Well, what happens when they get home? Mm-hmm. You know, what else is this child doing? Mm-hmm. So um, we um, we were able then to start, you know, people talking about this more. And in March of 2006, there was a study called the Silent Epidemic, and it had been funded by the Gates Foundation, released by I think Civic. Civic Ventures, and it looked at young adults who had dropped out of school, and 22% said it was to care for a family member. 
So between our study, the national statistics, the media attention, and that study, we were able to get funding and began the first uh, caregiving youth project here in Palm Beach County in 2006. We have a lot of listeners to the Waiting Room Revolution who are caregivers and usually older adults, so probably less that are younger. So I have a two-part question. Like, what do you think is, from what you've seen and heard, is the same? What are the challenges that are the same for young carers and maybe the typical older caregiver? And then the second part of it will be what's different. But, but what have you seen that where, where they have challenges that are common? Well, actually, what the kids do and what they feel very much mimics the adult. You know, if you look at the school as the workplace of the child and you look at employed family caregivers who, you know, may miss work, who have what they call presenteeism, they're there, but their mind is elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Or, or, you know, they can't, they're not working efficiently. They can't take a promotion. They may even quit work. And so the children go through those same things. And I know that when I was at that first conference and I presented some research that um, we had done with the National Family Caregivers Association and and people from other countries also presented the effects are the same, you know, of caregiving. Um, it's it's hard. Um, it's stressful. It takes up your. It's it's hard enough for us to manage our own lives, right? Um, much less manage somebody else's. And yeah. then the relationship changes, and that's a big factor because you know no longer say for a spousal caregiver, do you have that equal partnership? Um, Your role changes. uh, And for the kids, the same thing, you know, especially today, we have more grandparents raising grandchildren. And they've done this for a variety of reasons. And, and so then all of a sudden, the grandparent becomes sick. And, and then the child becomes the caregiver. So, Um, you know, and, and at the same time, you know, there's the, the kids don't have the, um, the memory bank. They don't have the experience bank, uh, that adults have, but, you know, what we've really seen is that you try and educate the pop, the population about caregiving, but until you're really ready and motivated to learn, you don't have that understanding of um, of what you need to do, and so it's really a unique person who who would have that understanding, unless they've been through that situation themselves before. Yeah, I, I think I'm appreciating this whole layer of caregivers that um, I guess I didn't really appreciate until I was listening to you, Connie, and listening to the very you know striking and compelling data that you collected, which I'm sure isn't very different than what we would find here in Canada. Um, And, you know, we, Sienna and I uh, focus so much on the uh, adult caregiver. um, And, you know, we appreciate that adult caregivers end up in their role just by happenstance. Uh, They don't get to uh, um, interview for the role. They don't get a job description. They don't get vacation time. Um, And the same is true for uh, young carers as well, that they just happen to be in that situation, um, that they end up with that role. And because they're silent caregivers, uh, they they are probably less likely to advocate for themselves than the adult caregiver for information that would be grounding for them in their role. Like, for example, uh, asking big questions to doctors or nurses, like, what can I expect with my grandpa or my grandma? Or, you know, how is this going to look over time? What's it going to um, require of me and for how long? Because they not only 
might they not get find their voice to ask or even know to ask those things but they're probably not even present when their adult person they're caring for is with the doctor or the nurse um, so they don't even get the opportunity to ask questions either so they just go with the flow many of the kids that we work with um, need to translate on behalf of oh, their families yeah. and so you know that adds a different layer and so they often do go to the doctor and sometimes by going to the doctor they miss school so yeah. um and and the doctors sometimes talk to them uh, you know particularly if they're caring for a parent who doesn't speak english so, and then, you know, the information may be beyond what the child can digest, and there may not yeah. be words in their own language. Now, yes, happenstance sometimes, um, and, but in, in some cultures, the children are assigned, mm. you know, and otherwise they step up to the plate. Mm -hmm. um, but... Unfortunately, you know, people don't do caregiver assessments, you know, to see if that person who's going to be the caregiver is qualified. Mm -hmm. The AMA does have um, a caregiver assessment, but people don't know to use it. One of the things that we're trying to work with right now in, in nursing, in medicine, in education, in social work is to include a module on family caregiving of caregivers of all ages in curriculum mm -hmm. because, you know, teachers, educators, um, they don't know what to ask. And mm -hmm. so until, until that happens, um, it, you know, it's all just part of a process that has to be in place um, in order for change to occur. That's such a, uh, an important point, this idea of um, caregiving curricula being embedded in the formal training of healthcare providers. Um, I, I hadn't thought of that angle, but how important that is to teach doctors and nurses and social workers how to um, interact, assess, support, um, work with the informal caregiver layer. Yeah, because even we had a boy, um, he complained to the school nurse that his, his back was hurting and he was, he was one of our kids. And so one of the things we do is a home visit. So at the time of the home visit, uh, we discovered that he was caring for his brother along with his single mom who worked and they lived in a, in a small house, but this had a high stoop. And mom worked as a maintenance person at a facility. And so they had a van. And so, but in order to get his brother into the van, he and his mom had to lift him in and out of the house, up and down the stairs. So it's no wonder that as his brother got older and heavier, that it was causing more of a strain. So thankfully, we were able to find somebody to build a ramp because, you know, when you have a high stoop, it the ramp has to have a, a long slope. It can't just be, you know, an acute angle. Mm -hmm. And so when that happened, then the mom could take her other her son in his wheelchair right into the house and didn't have to wait for our student to get home, which then freed him up to have some socialization away from the isolation uh, that he otherwise felt. Yeah, it requires such a um, holistic assessment uh, around the young carer, uh, you know, in so many different ways, including home visits and the environmental scan and, you know, um, the different ways that you can um, offer support that would offload the young carer in, in creative ways. Yeah, and by strengthening the family, um, it helps to reduce the stress on the yeah. child also. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I was going to say, like, because I've, I've read about um, some of the programs that you run, and I'm curious from your perspective, what is the impact of these programs on the on the learning, on the development of young people? And especially because I'm just trying to think of the parallel here for Waiting Room Revolution. You know, when people realize there's information that they were missing and they get it, and they move from being in the dark and in the know and getting the right diagnosis, using you know, recognizing that what they're doing is caregiving, for example, getting the label, they, there is a release of stress because they find their community, they see, they feel seen, they feel validated. So I'm wondering for young cares, is it similar when they um, are recognized and have a community of which um, allows them to, to, well, to have part of their life be just as kids or teenagers? Yeah, so um, it's, it's very revealing. So we we do a screening process for kids in beginning in sixth grade. And uh, we've developed a level of responsibility that's very much based on the adult level of uh, burden or level of care. And so you have to be in the top three levels in order to um, be in our program and use our resources. So one of the first things after we get um, the screening done and we do the analysis, our family specialist, who is a master's prepared social work, um, meets with the student and, you know, lets them know about the program and then invites them in. And um, one of the first things that we offer is a six-week skills building group. Mm -hmm. And it's between six and ten kids at a time. We do it in school. And all of a sudden, you know, the kid learns that they're not the only ones. Mm -hmm. And a special bond grows between uh, these students. So that's really special. You know, it's so important, no matter what you're going through, to know that you're not alone. Mm -hmm. And we do, you know, this is like a foundation group um, where we do things like problem solving and communication and managing stress and the kids each time, you know, like do a check-in, what's going on. And um, then when we do an activity and we involve kids from multiple schools, you know, their world grows bigger and they realize it's not just in their school, but it's in other schools too. So that alone is, is very powerful in addition to giving them uh, some tools uh, that they can use. Um, to help their their caregiving and particularly their stress, and also to encourage them that that there's a life beyond and and the importance of having you know their own life and self care and planning for their own careers. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things I want to say, but I I I'm appreciating that educating people or providing courses for young carers. Um, you're saying is very time sensitive, uh, that the person has to uh, be in the role before they're receptive to um, receiving any kind of education. So it's not like you can just say, okay, all sixth graders are going to have education in being a caregiver, because if they're not caregiving, it just goes in one year and out the other. It doesn't have the same weight. So uh, I'm, I'm just trying to, in my head, draw some parallels with when um, we might offer such a thing in the adult world, or just this idea of time sensitivity with education and support for, for people. Yeah, I think that's, that's critical. Um, right now, we're speaking with uh, some people who had reached to us from the state of Rhode Island Department of Education and their school district, which has been having challenges with uh, students um, and graduation rates. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to reimagine high school because it's, it's not only the student who's family caregiving for someone who's, who's ill or disabled, um, but also it could be now students have to work, um, particularly with the pandemic where people have lost jobs and the kids have had to go to work to help their families, or you know they may be needing to help a uh, sibling. Of course, some of our, our caregiving youth also have to help a sibling. 
um, but that all that takes away, and we're trying to help them understand the difference between essentially babysitting versus mm -hmm. family caregiving, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you know it, how different it can be. Mm -hmm. One of I don't know if you all require like community service hours for kids to graduate from high school. Yes, um, but we do, and so. Our kids fill out a log sheet, and we worked out with our school district so that we can award prorated community service hours for what they're doing at home oh. to take that burden away because they just don't they don't have time to go volunteer someplace else. I'm aware that the trajectory of caregiving probably varies, uh, and I'm wondering if the, your approach to supporting young carers differs if they're for example, caring for a loved one who has a progressive life-limiting illness, who has a shortened life expectancy, and that role is going to be a temporary role versus someone who's looking at being in this role for decades and decades, if it's to care for a sibling um, with a chronic condition or a parent with, or a grandparent with a disability, but they're not going to die from it. Is the approach different depending on the caring trajectory? Our approach per se is not different. What types of resources we offer um, will vary depending on that situation, um, but also helping uh, the child, you know, who may be experiencing the death of their loved one um, helping them, you know, when we know that it's a terminally ill single parent, one of the things that we've done is knowing that that child will probably have to go in foster care if there's no other family around, is trying to make that transition as easy as possible so that we can identify a family that, you know, may be there, the family that they'll be placed with, so that that can help as well as to provide grief support. Um, the kids stay in our program from sixth grade through high school graduation. So the average time that they spend with us is about five and a half years because mm -hmm. obviously life happens and not everybody enters in sixth grade. You talked about supporting young carers over time, sometimes for many years. And I'm curious how your approach or the services that you've provided, have they changed due to COVID? You know, what, what's really interesting to me and really heartbreaking recently is that I think, I don't know how the media is with you all, but with the pandemic, there's been so much focus on death uh, related to COVID uh, that it has the kids very anxious. And we usually have an overnight camp, and at some point in the camp, usually after breakfast, after they've had a night away, uh, we pass out note cards and they write down, you know, what worries them. And so this time, because of COVID, we couldn't do overnight, so we kind of packed everything into a day. So after lunch, we did this exercise, and for the first time ever, one-third of the kids were worried about their care receiver dying. Mm. And this had never shown up before. And the only thing I can think of is, is the media and how um, people have talked about death and how afraid these kids are. And, you know, they're kids. And so as a child, you know, the world centers around you, and it's like, what's going to happen to me? On one hand it's possible that all the talk of death and dying um, during the pandemic has raised alarm bells for these young carers. A third of them, you said, responded um, that they felt anxiety around that. But is it also possible that it's, a, it's almost like a, a good thing in a way, um, not that they're scared about it, but that the discussion around death and dying has given them permission to admit that they were and have been worried about their um, loved one dying. Like, is it possible that the people that are scared of their loved one dying, that the loved ones 
are actually at risk of dying? Well, I think that's a really good point, um, Sammy. And, you know, maybe that's always underlying. But the reality is that, that the majority of people who these kids are caring for don't die, you know, in, in the immediate future. Hmm. Um, last year, I think, out of 400 and something kids, we had maybe five deaths. So, um, because, you know, the management of chronic illnesses has improved so much and people are living longer with chronic illnesses and, and needing care. I wonder um, though, if it's an opportunity, because we know we're all living in a death denying society. And um, I'm appreciating what you're saying that most of these loved ones are not in fact dying. So why should we worry the kids about death? But in a way, can it be turned into um, sort of a, an open discussion about death and dying and normalizing death and dying as part of the life cycle, but good news, young carers, uh, you know, your, your loved one isn't there yet, but, you know, let's talk about death and dying. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, almost like, I know that's not your main mission, but it's become our, it's one of our missions is really to um, help assuage this uh, crisis we have of a death denying healthcare system and death denying society that leads people uh, to close the doors around discussions around fears and anxieties about uh, death and dying. And so any opportunity to it goes back to this education at the right time. If COVID has raised fears for young carers about death and dying, wonder again if that's an opportunity to go there uh, and at least with this group of people, create a, a, a population, a community of young carers who are more woke about death and dying. And at the same time, um, make them feel more comfortable with the fact that their own loved one isn't imminently dying, but that it's okay to talk about death and dying. I agree that it's, it certainly is okay to talk about. And Sammy, I think you make a really good point, you know, something that we should probably consider. What have you learned from other countries? Because this issue is not, um, you know, unique to Florida or anywhere. I mean, there's examples of great ideas or, or this issue is, is global and there have been, you know, good ideas across, you know, the globe. So have you had it, have you had experiences from and able to learn from other countries that you think are good models for, for what we could do different? Well, we, um, in the beginning, you know, we used some of what we had, I had learned from the UK model. Um, but what was interesting too is that then, you know, our, we thought, well, how do we get to the kids? And so that was through the schools. And so some folks from the UK came over to see our program and then wound up um, having a person, a go-to person in the schools in the UK. So I think that you know, the most working between systems of healthcare, education, and the community mm -hmm. are really uh, critical. And I think that we do a good job of that when I look at what some of, and I think we're further along in that, mm -hmm. that some of the other countries are. You know, I, I can imagine that um, the first, first things first, I'm thinking, I wonder how we're doing here in Canada. And as you were talking, I, I was thinking, I guess the first step is to figure out how to identify young carers. So how do you, how would we go about if we thought, okay, Connie, we're going to do this better here in Canada. Okay. Step one, identify young carers. How do you do that? Well, as I mentioned earlier, we do a screening in sixth grade. So you screen um, in 
a certain, so it's become standard screening in sixth grade in a small number of schools in Florida. And uh, in Palm Beach County is a, a large county and um, the school district here is the 10th largest in the country. Mm. And so we initially worked with their Department of Research and Accountability. And so the school, um, the middle school sends out an opt out form to the parents to let them know that the screening is going to go on. And then if the parents don't sign the opt out consent, then uh, we do the screening process. Wow. So um, I was going to ask, what are the questions? In the screener? Yeah. Like, what are some of the things that you're asking for in the screener to, to know that? Well, it's a, it's a very short screen. It only has six questions, um, but it asks if, if, um, if there's somebody in their home with uh, a special medical condition and the focus is on medical. And then if, if there is and they help, is the person living with them or close by? And then it goes on to ask the types of activities that they do, uh, separating out the ADLs and the IADLs. So they just have to check that off. And then it asks how much time that they spend. Uh, so, and the, the time is broken up on a weekday and a school day. And the purpose of that was to help them quantify it a little more because adults are asked, you know, how much time in a week. And, and the, we, we wanted to make it easier on the kids so that it takes only, you know, less than 10 minutes for the children to complete that. Mm -hmm. And then we're able to do the analysis and then meet with the students. So that's how we identify about 70%. And then in, in the schools that our formal program are in, um, this, the, sometimes we get a referral uh, from one of the school staff. Mm -hmm. um, we also you know, may get a referral from another agency. And we do lunch and learn sessions uh, like twice a month in the school. And we focus on a particular diagnosis, um, mm. usually looking at the top 10 diagnoses of the care receiver as mm -hmm. part of a learning tool. And then other kids come up and um, say, oh, I do this, you know, and then we talk to them. Yeah. yeah. And then they get entered. So people who might not have screened positively um, in the screening, or maybe this is a different um grade in school but so most of right. the people are identified doing the um the the screening form but then there's another smaller number that come to you either by direct referrals from teachers or because they just bubble up because they've attended yeah. uh, one of your sessions yeah I, I feel that this is so important that it it can't just be Florida. It, it's got it's got to be. Well, I agree. You know, my ultimate goal is that um, none of the children in in our country, in your country, should have to drop out of school because of family caregiving. Do you know what? And our high school graduation rate is like ninety eight percent. And a lot of these kids are, are from financially insecure homes and minorities. So that's about 20% higher for this same population, um, you know, if they didn't have the support. So it's yeah. really, it, you can build a good economic model uh, because it's a good investment, you know, because we want, we want healthy, productive adults. And I don't know about in Canada, but here we need more people in the healthcare workforce. And okay. if these children are supported properly, a lot of them want to go into healthcare. Well, just like you, Connie, you became a nurse, no doubt, because of I your know. experiences. Yeah. But I'm feeling like very um, energized by this conversation and curious and alarmed at the same time, because I will admit, I really don't know what the data and statistics look like here in Canada, but I can't imagine that it would be much different. And I am unaware, I'm ignorant of what 
processes are in place to screen and identify young carers and any kind of structured support that's in place. Um, you're, you're inspiring me, Connie, with your work. Well, that's a good thing. And just one other point is that, so um, throughout the United States, there's a thing, um, a survey called the Youth Risk Behavior Survey, yeah. and it's through the CDC. And so after much discussion, we were able to get a caregiving question on the 2019 Spring Youth Risk Behavior Survey. Mm -hmm. And um, so it showed that 23.6% um, of middle school children and 16.4% of high school children were doing some type of caregiving. And so when we looked at, and this is just in public schools. Mm -hmm. And so when we looked at the numbers, it's more than 290,000 kids in Florida. And uh, when you you know, compare, so in, in Florida and in the States, children who are in foster care or who are homeless are recognized. But at that same time, there were 95,000 children of all ages who were homeless and 15,000 children of all ages who were in foster care. And, you know, so, but people, people can get, they have a, a visual of mm. what what a child who's homeless looks like, mm -hmm. you know, or someone who's gone through the trauma and been in foster care. And so, you know, if you say caregiving youth or young carers, people don't know what that is. Mm -hmm. You know, well, and so that's why education is so important. There is a phenotypical look <laughs> when someone is not well cared for themselves, right? But a young carer. Well, and our kids can have that look too. Well, they can, um, but they can also just look like anyone else. And that's the danger as exactly, well. Exactly. And the other conundrum is that the person that they're caring for may look well. And so it's a lot easier for educators and others if, you know, your mom is in a wheelchair or using a walker or a yeah. cane to say, oh, you have a problem. Whereas, like one of one of um, one of our moms who had MS, you know, with MS you get more tired as the day goes on, mm -hmm. and so she was talking to somebody at the school, and they were sure that she had an alcohol or drug problem, and mm -hmm. you know, so we had to educate them that it's not that it's her disease. In fact, you know, one of our kids on, on their little worry cards had written. You know, what do you do if if your person looks normal but isn't? And that happens also with mental illness, with yeah. brittle diabetics, with people with heart disease. Yeah. You know, you don't un, you don't recognize them as somebody who um, requires care. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. What those you said the sort of the top ten conditions. I'm I'm guessing they're not all just sort of cancer, they're, they are varied, including mental health and addictions, potentially, um, and, and various things. But I, I think if, what, what are those conditions? It would be interesting for us, uh, for our listeners well, to be aware. Um, actually, the kids in our program pretty much follow um, the general statistics. But what we don't see are a lot of our children with um, substance misuse in the home because we have to get parental consent for the child to be in our program. I see. And so that's not as likely to happen. I see, I see. So what are the top 10, Connie? You, you don't have to know all of them, but what are the top three or- Disease is definitely you know, up there with cancer, diabetes, um, kids on the autism spectrum, we're seeing more of that, um, as well as like functional decline for older people, strokes, so when you say autism, it's like caring for a sibling with autism? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Or other congenital, you know, illnesses. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, I'm going to, when I, so I am a palliative care physician and I care for people in their homes. And I have to tell you, this has not been on my radar. I care for adults 
And I'm always on the lookout for the adult caregivers, of course, and I'm simultaneously screening for distress and burden and questions and I care for them as a unit. I also am watching for little ones. So um, kids um, and you know how they're experiencing the adult's illness, but I haven't really been looking for kids as young carers. So I am- Well, what's, what's so interesting is that I was over in Tampa one time and um, talking with this physician who deals with uh, medically complex children. And he said to me, well, Connie, before I talk to you, my focus has always been on my patient, not on his brother who was suctioning him. Oh, okay. That's not, that's not good for, for me. No, for, but it's, it's the same as with you, Sammy. You yeah. Know, your yeah. focus is on your patient um, and the surrounding hey, family. Yeah. The patient and the adult caregiver really, right. or the kids that are, you know, grieving, but not in the function as care, young carers. Although when you're talking, I, I am remembering a patient with ALS, a woman who had two young children um, in middle school. I can't give too many details, but their one child had autism and the other child and the husband worked after school and in the evenings. Okay, if you're following me. So one child was left at home after school until the father came home, caring for his mom with ALS, the sibling with autism. And I'm feeling extremely guilty right now. I remember thinking to myself, this is so complex in here, but I didn't call him out as a young carer. Yeah, it was um, one of our families with ALS. There were a couple of siblings and, you know, we helped them to organize their schedules so that they could each have time off to get their homework done. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm woke, Connie. I just have to tell you that <laughs> we hope that our audience learns a lot, but I've learned a lot, Connie. One of the one of the barriers that you know that we often hear that clinicians um, feel like I'm getting the adult patients again don't want to know and so they don't go there. But I'm wondering what your experience has been for younger caregivers or young caregivers. Um, do they find the same barriers where they're talked to differently or they uh, are not recognized as having vital information and therefore face barriers of trying to ask questions but sort of being ignored? Well, sometimes they're ignored or sometimes they're spoken to um, because there's a realization that that's, that's how things are going to get done. So it's a bit of both, it sounds like. Sometimes yeah. Yeah, it depends mm -hmm. on the situation. Either they, they, they have yeah. to step in and be the full, uh, you know, the, the main everything. Translator, yeah. yeah. Or the opposite. They're, they're forgotten about and pushed to the side. I see. You know, this is um, this population would would benefit hugely. These young carers um, from having skilled and dedicated occupational therapists involved, uh, as well as child life therapists. When you think about it, um, we think about their roles in other populations, but really. I can imagine a whole discipline being focused on supporting young carers, a multidisciplinary approach. Um, I, Connie, do you have any experience with occupational therapists or child life specialists when it comes to supporting young carers? Uh, not really. Just long ago when I was in school, you know, we worked with some child life, but usually that was among the younger pediatric population. Yeah, because I believe that they focus on the same age group. Um, I know that you typically would get involved with younger, but I believe that child life specialists would span the definition of what we would say is pediatrics here, which is, I guess, from birth until age 18. Yeah, and so we're, we're with the kids until they graduate from high school, and we've recently started an alumni group. 
So what I'm hearing too is that your approach is not just a medical one. You address the social aspects of caregiving too. And so it's the entire program, not just about having a medical pediatric specialist, for example, right? Pat, if you have somebody who's so focused, then you lose the multidisciplinary, you know, approach. And one of the things is is that what's going on at home is beyond the purview of the school, mm. essentially. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I think the school district really appreciates us mm-hmm. coming from the outside in to support the kids, to strengthen the families, and allow them to learn and be successful. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. the schools are so strapped, and now, you know, uh, with COVID and everything, many teachers have quit, and the school staffings are low, so that there's an extra strain um, within the schools. So it takes some of that burden away from them. And there's also the confidentiality issue. Mm-hmm. But there is great value in doing that home visit, you know, and unless, yeah. you know, yeah. that's a component and giving the kids the activities. So in school, out of school and at home are the three uh, prongs of our approach. We often end with asking, do you have any advice? Um, for others so that young carers can have a better illness experience? What's your advice? My advice is to learn to keep your eyes open, to say thank you um, to the kids who may be in this role and just to love and support them. Mm -hmm. That's good advice. The best thing about this podcast series is meeting people like you, Connie, who inspire us through your incredible work and dedication uh, to such an important and, um, you know, un- unsung group of people, um, young carers, they deserve the attention that you're giving them. Thank you for joining us today, Connie. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com to listen to our first season about the seven keys and to learn more. The podcast is produced and edited by me and Kayla McMillan. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out.